We've been working our way through uh, Paul's uh, letter to the church in Rome, and we're going to continue that today. We're going to look at uh, Romans 3, 1 to 20, but before I read that, uh, let me pray, and uh, then we'll dive in. Uh, Pray with me. Lord, as uh, we read this text, uh, uh, these are hard words and um, uh, difficult words for us. And so I pray for two things for us today. I pray that by your spirit, you would give us eyes and ears, soft hearts, uh, to see the truth about ourselves. But more than that, I pray that you would show us not just the depth of our sin, but that your mercy, your grace, and your love, your warmth towards us is deeper still. So would you do that today in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Romans 3, 1 to 20, text is in the bulletin also uh, up on uh, the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear and respond to it as such this morning. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let be God true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified by your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves... To show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? To inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there's uh, something that I know about all of us, uh, and it's this. We don't like bad news. Now, maybe you like bad news when somebody you don't like gets bad news, but in general, right, we don't like bad news about ourselves. We don't want to hear it. Or we want to work our way around it. We want to, um, yeah, deny it. Now, What's interesting about this text, as we'll see in just a few minutes, is Paul anticipates that. What's he been doing for the last little bit in this, uh, in this letter is piling the bad news up, right? On and on and on. Bad news, bad news. Depravity, bad news. By the way, did you know you're a sinner? Depravity. More depravity. 
and a little more depravity on top of that, right? So he's been very careful to do that, and he's been comprehensive in that across every human being, every one of us. Uh, uh, we are caught in uh, this uh, uh, web that we can't get ourselves out of. And so what I want to do this morning to go ahead and do what Paul does here as he answers objections is to start out with some good news. And then we're going to deal a long time with the bad news. And then we're going to finish with some good news. So just to kind of give you an outline of where we're going, right? I mean, we just sang, I I don't know if you were uh, paying uh, uh, attention or not, right? Uh, That... um, Where did I see that? What was I thinking about? Oh, yeah. Though great our sins and sore our woes. I like to think about how sore my woes are, but I'm not as in touch with how great my sin is. His grace much more aboundeth, no helping love, his his helping love no limit knows, our utmost need it soundeth. And that's where we're going to end up today. But let's start here, right? Uh, Paul writes this, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You might not have even thought you needed peace with God, but Paul begins there, right? Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. He's going to mention boasting a lot, right? We've talked about this, that uh, our tendency often is to boast in Uh, our accomplishments, our gifts, our looks, our achievements, uh, or at least to boast in the fact that we're not as bad as those other people. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The most shocking verse in the Bible. Right? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person one might, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were uninterested, while we were actually enemies of God, God did something for us. Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Renewal, strength, joy, hope. The pathway, my friends, to that goes through the pathway of facing the truth about ourselves. On December 28th, this past year, uh, my middle son and my wife were upstairs in the attic cleaning it up, which once your kids get to a certain age, they're no longer in your house, but their stuff is. So we're trying to get the stuff out. He was being very helpful, uh, Uh, unusually so. And so uh, helping her get uh, the stuff out, she had to go downstairs to meet a a delivery guy at the door, and she tumbled down the steps. So we go to the emergency room, they take x-rays, that kind of stuff. They set us up with an appointment with an orthopedic guy. 
So we go see him and we're all nervous. What's he going to say? He takes another x-ray and he says, well, right now you don't need surgery. So we heard that. He also said, now sometimes these bones move. And so what, that's why we're going to have you come back next week to get an x-ray to see if they move. And if they do, you'll need surgery. We didn't hear that. He said it, <laughs> but we didn't really hear that. So we go back the next week, takes the x-ray, comes into the office, sits down, looks at us first thing out of his mouth. Well, you need surgery. Marty's response was, nope. <laughs> My response, I did not say this, but I thought, no, somebody in this room is going to need surgery, but it's not her, right? <laughs> so we just reacted with a lot of anger and dismay. Did not want to hear that. So we began raising objections. Well, do we re does she really need surgery? And he's like, oh, it'll heal, but your wrist will be crooked and you'll lose some function. And I'm still thinking, okay, let's not do the surgery. That doesn't sound so bad. It's not my wrist, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I think, I think, I think we, could, we, could still, we could still avoid surgery, right? So I uh, did not want to hear that. Did not want to uh, deal with that at all. And yet, the truth is, we needed that. She needed that. Without the intervention of a surgeon, her wrist would be crooked and it wouldn't work right. Without the intervention of Jesus Christ, we're dead, period. We're lost. And so the, the, the fact of the matter is, what makes that so hard is, when you break your wrist, it hurts, it swells up, it turns purple, it looks bad, you can't use it, and so you feel like something here is wrong. But for many of us, and for maybe much of our lives, what we think is, is that, yeah, things are not perfect, but they're pretty good. And in all honesty, it doesn't feel to me like this description that we've been looking at for the last four or five weeks is an accurate description of who I am. And when we come at it that way, and when we come at God's indictment uh, to us and the fact that without Christ we have no righteousness, that we have no hope, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, when we, when we don't come to full grips with that, what happens to us is that the joy, that the good news, the great news, the best news that the gospel is, slides off our hearts, uh, does not really stick. It seems like, oh, that's a nice thing to know that there's a God who is favorably disposed towards me. But we miss the wonder that Christ died for the ungodly. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for me. And so as a result of that, what happens to many of us is, is because we lose that. And maybe at some point in your life, uh, you came to grips with the fact that you were a sinner and that you needed Christ to be your Savior. But the fact of the matter is that the lack of joy, the lack of power, the lack of love, the lack of so much in our lives stems from the fact that we miss the fact, the wonder, the scandal of the gospel. 
Because the way we tend to think about it is to say to someone, you are a sinner dead in your trespasses and sins, seems so scandalous. Oh, be careful, don't say that. <clears throat> but the, there is a scandal here. An unbelievable scandal. But the scandal is, is that Christ died for the ungodly. That the scandal of the gospel is that Jesus loves people like us. And when we come to grips with the fact, when we see ourselves, we begin to see ourselves as what Paul is describing fallen humanity, then the cross grows larger, grace grows deeper, and joy is sweeter. And that's what he is getting at, and, and, and that's why he takes so much time and energy to lay this out for us. Now, one of the things that we learn about Paul right here at the beginning of chapter 3 is he is a, a mindful and smart communicator because he knows that as he has gone through these first couple of chapters cataloging the depravity and the sinfulness of, of, of everyone, every single one of us, that's a, a you know, Jew and Gentile, that's a comprehensive list, you're either one or the other. As, as he does that, he recognizes that there are going to be some people, particularly religious people, uh, particularly people who have grown up uh, at least in Rome with, the, um, uh, with a Jewish background that they're going to object. And so what he does here is he begins to address some of those objections, right? First of all, he says, that is there no advantage to having the Bible? Well, no, there's every advantage to having the Bible. It's good to have the Bible. It's good to read the Bible. It's good to know the words of God. It's good to have that revelation. We should delight in it. It should be a good thing for us. But the problem comes when we look at the fact that we have the Scripture, that we can read it and that we can know it, that somehow or other we miss the central message that the Scripture is telling us. And what the central message of the scriptures is telling us is, is that humanity has fallen, that we are all under a curse, that every single one of us uh, has no right standing before God, and God must intervene on our behalf to save us, to give us that righteousness, to give us that standing. And not only does he do that by, by his atoning uh, sacrifice, but he does, he does even more than that. He doesn't just make us righteous. He makes us his own. He adopts us into his very family so that those of us who were enemies, the ungodly, are now the very family of God, right? So, so the problem is not the Bible. There's every advantage to that. The problem is that in our web of depravity and sin, we misread what's there. And we use, as he has said in the text we read a few minutes ago, we boast in the fact that oh, we have the truth. Without seeing, oh, we have the truth, praise God that he saved a sinner like me. Secondly, there's another objection, and that is, well, because so many don't believe, is the promise of God nullified? No, the fact of the matter is God is faithful even to faithless people. And God has been striving since the third chapter of Genesis to uh, win, redeem, claim a people for himself. And there's been constant failure, consistent failure, and consistent faithlessness. But God continues to strive. And the pinnacle of God striving to win us and redeem us is seen in the life 
uh, uh, and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, then how can God judge? Which is such such an interesting question, right? Because the the way we tend to think about that is, well, you know, there's, if I were to ask you today, uh, is there somebody out there that God should judge? I'm sure you could give me a pretty comprehensive list. We like the fact that God judges. And, And in fact, that's a good thing, right? We want justice. We want God to deal with sin. We want God to deal with the hard things, the terrible things, the, the evil things that are in the world. And so, yeah, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, of course we want God to judge, right? And then my favorite one, which is the one that Paul gets most often in his ministry, is, well, if grace is so good, and God is so warmly disposed towards us, and the cross is so big, Why don't I sin all the more so that that grace would abound all the more? And of course, Paul recognizes, he says, you know, what a terrible accusation. What a, what a scurrilous thing to say about our gospel. Because the, the reality is that the, the gospel is so, such good news, such great news, that it reorients the life of the person who God in his grace and his mercy reaches into their lives and gives them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe so that they're changed, Right? Listen, when you think about the gospel and when you tell somebody the gospel, I really think, honestly, that we have not done a good job of communicating to people the grace of God unless this question comes up. That it is so scandalous, that it is so rich, that it is so free, that that it, it, that, that you, that it would lead you to the conclusion that, well, wow, that is so awesome. What I do doesn't matter, so I should sin more to make grace even greater. Until someone asks you a question like that, perhaps we haven't shared the gospel in its fullness. Because Paul seems to be getting that question all the time, right? So, uh, this is... This, this is such a, a, a great thing for us uh, to think about and such a great thing for us to unpack because looking full on our depravity and our sin is the pathway for us to experience the joy that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to give us, right? Now, the problem with that is, and what, what happens to us uh, more often is, Uh, that we don't like to think of ourselves this way. We like to think of ourselves as better than we are. And, And we like to be able to be autonomous enough to be able to define you know, no, not, none of us is going to say we're perfect, but we all want to be able to define our sins our way. Right? A few weeks ago, uh, Anne Long uh, uh, sent me a text. She was touring the building, looking at all the things that are broken, which um, it's a list. And she says, did you know that the wall that uh, is behind the basket, one of the baskets in the gym, the outside wall into the hallway, the sheetrock is getting cracked apparently from guys playing basketball and crashing into the wall underneath the basket. They're hitting it so hard 
that it is cracking the backside of the wall. Now, that's awesome, right? I mean, that tells me there's some hard basketball being played in that gym, right? And, uh, uh, you know, which just reminds me, I don't ever want to look in there to see guys playing basketball because I don't want to see that. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know anything about it. But it has me thinking that, you know, you and I, our lives, in fact, the whole human race is just a giant pickup basketball game. You know what a pickup basketball game is? It's where you have a gym, you have some baskets, and guys get together and they're like, all right, three on three, two on two, five on five, whatever it is that we're going to play. And so you play basketball. Now, there's a, a basketball is the American game, by the way. You know, we thought it up. We play it better than anybody else. It's, it's our game. The problem with pickup basketball is this. There's a thing in basketball called fouls, right? And so in a pickup basketball game, who calls the foul? Well, the way you're supposed to do it, right, is you're supposed to call it on yourself, right? You know, you go up for a layup and I hit your arm. So I'm like, yeah, I fouled you. But what happens when I, you go up for a layup and I hit your arm and I'm like, that really wasn't a foul. I didn't foul you. You just thought I fouled you. I got too close to you. I didn't really, I didn't really foul you. Now what gets even better about that is, and what makes it even more like us is, we have a disagreement about that. Or, or we have a vote. Right? So, what gets determined to be a foul is if the majority of the guys out here say, you fouled, then we got a foul. And that's the standard by which we call fouls. Well, this year, you know, we're interested in charging into people. <clears throat> Next year, we're not so interested in charging into people. We're interested in what's called hacking, where you hit somebody, right? So, so if you're in a year where hacking is a foul, you can run over people all you want, and nobody's going to say it's a foul because we've all agreed that's not a foul this year. So, so the, 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 the issue for us is, and the issue for all human beings is, what we want to say is we have the right to call our own fouls. We have the right to say, yeah, I did that. No, I didn't do that. And sometimes, you know, we're, we're virtuous and we're like, yeah, I did that. Maybe. Sometimes. Or maybe we think, yeah, I fouled you, but you had it coming. Or I fouled you because you fouled this guy on my team earlier and you didn't call it on yourself, so I decided to send you into the wall and break the sheetrock, right? The fact is, the reality is, what, what we have here and what Paul is getting at is, is that all of us, one of the evidences to us is that we are broken is we've lost any sense and we've lost any ability in and of ourselves to be, to be able to identify our sin. And what Paul does here is he shows to us the very fact 
that not only are we committing fouls, not only are we sinning against one another and sinning against God, but we live and breathe in a world that is sin. It's as if you have a passport, and that passport says your country of origin is called sin. And because that is who you are, and that is where you are from, there's no wonder that you're prone to do these things. And so to to get at the richness and the beauty of the gospel, what we have to see is, is that God says to us, there is no boasting, there is no shred of your own righteousness. And in fact, true joy, true life, uh, real delight in, in, in the work uh, uh, that God is doing is found in coming to grips first and foremost with the fact that we cannot save ourselves, that we are broken, and that unless God in, uh, intervenes, not only in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but also to open our eyes and to open our ears and to soften our hearts, we will never find life. It's a devastating look at human beings. It's a devastating look at our own hearts. But the fact of the matter is, the the great word to us in this is that in the midst of that, in the midst of us being caught in this web, in the midst of us actually, as the scripture says to us over and over again, that we are God's enemies until he makes us his friends, which, by the way, you know, when Jesus says, love your enemies, I mean, the, the, how would you know how to love your enemies? Well, look at the cross. That's what God is doing there. God pursues those who are hostile to him, Right? So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty powerful picture of, to us of just... Uh, how deep and wide and profound uh, our sin and rebellion against him is. Next slide. So one of the things that he goes on to do here in this text is he lays out for us this kind of devastating list of behavior, right? Where uh, he says, all have turned to God uh, aside. Uh, no one's righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Uh, No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, right? Why not? Why wouldn't there be fear of God? Well, because we've decided what's okay and what's not. And so what we do in that situation is we create this God of our own making so that we are then free to kind of stack ourselves up against the rest of humanity to determine, oh, I'm okay. My righteousness is found in the fact that I'm at least not as bad as that guy, right? So we could go through this list of, of behaviors, but I just want to pick two this morning for us uh, to look at that, to help illustrate what, what Paul uh, is getting at. I, I want to look at our mouths and our wills, right? So this is what he says about our mouths, that they're open graves, that they're uh, full of deceit, that we have venomous speech. It's poisonous, right? 
uh, and that our, our language is full of curses and bitterness, which is, seems like a devastating thing, right? Because we don't really, is that the way, is that the way our, our mouths are? Well, I, I was thinking about this this week, about how this works, and I think one of the ways that I know that outside of the work of Christ in me, this is true of me, is a scenario that happens all the time. I'm around somebody, I see someone, and they sin. They really sinned. They really sin. They did something bad. Something that uh, uh, is offensive, something that is, is bad. A sin. Well, what's my f- first thought when I see somebody sin? Well, I want to go back and talk to them about it and win them to Christ, right? No. 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 I want to find somebody else to tell about it. Right? Now, now I'm better than most of you at this because what I do with that is, what I say is, you know, I saw Michael Oberly do this. Do, do you think he was sinning when he did that? Do you, do you, do you think that's, that, that's what happened there? Of course. You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, sin is sin. And the Bible gives us ways in which we deal with that when we see people sin or when people sin around us. But the fact of the matter is, one of the ways that I know that my tongue outside of the work of the Spirit in my life is bent is, I am always thinking, I wish there was a way I could tell somebody else about this so we could share in the offense, right? What about our wills? I mean, Paul says something here that seems to be so contrary to our own experience, and that is, he says, no one seeks God. No one understands. No one seeks God. Well, wait a minute. I thought, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here in church, and I'm, I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I, I have an interest in God. I, I, you know, I, I am seeking him. Well, what Paul wants us to see here is, is that if, if, if you and I, uh, are seeking God. We are seeking God because he sought us first. Because oftentimes, what actually we think of as seeking after God is seeking after another God, seeking after something else. Did you read that uh, at the beginning of the bulletin? Did you read that quote from D.A. Carson? Such a great, uh, a great quote. If we see that we are guilty... We will understand that for the gospel to be effective, it must clear us of our guilt. If we are alienated from God, we must be reconciled to him. If we stand under his judicial wrath, that wrath must be propitiated, right? We talked about that, Uh, an atoning sacrifice to turn aside the wrath of God. If the entire created order lies under the curse, the curse must be lifted and the created order transformed. If we're dead, we must be made alive. If the heart of our idolatry is abysmal self-focus, and I love this word, the degodding of God, which is really the heart of what Paul is getting at here. God must be restored in our vision and life to his rightful glory. In other words, we gain clarity regarding the gospel when we discern what it fixes. And so what, what Paul is getting at here is, is this deep truth that we are in this fix that we cannot 
that we cannot manage, that there's nothing we can do about it, and that uh, if left to our own devices, we are left to a world of decay and decline and ultimately death. But the great news in that is, and the great thing that we have to say about that is, as devastating as that is, as terrible as that is, as humbling as that is, as hard as that is for us, praise God. He did something about it, right? When we couldn't do anything about our state, Jesus Christ intervened. When we couldn't do anything about our standing before God, God made us righteous in Christ. When we couldn't do anything because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ made us alive, right? And so the, the, the great news in this is, you know, when you, when you read this, you're like, I reject that. I am not like that. Well, when you reject the news about your sin and the bad news about your sin, you must also necessarily reject the good news of Jesus Christ for you. Because the fact is, there is no kind of amalgamation of these things. It's either Christ crucified or you're left to your own devices. And so when we see and we come to grips with the depth of our sin and the depth of our need, what is the great news about that is? God has a remedy. You know, if, if, if we think that our problem is any other number of things that we tend to think are our problem, then there, God's solution is not going to mean a whole lot to us. But when we see the reality of our state before God and we see the reality of the, the deadness of our lives and the deadness of our hearts and the reality that is true of us in that, then the gospel's good news. Because God's done something about it. And what Paul tells us here is, is the right standing that we need before God is ours now when we trust ourselves to this thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, right? Last slide. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from anything of, that we might boast in, apart from anything that we might do, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, Paul goes through this great catalog of human depravity to make crystal clear to us the beauty of the work of Jesus Christ for us. Now, one last objection that you may have today. So you read this list of depravity and you read this list of sins and you think that is such a true indictment of human beings, those human beings out there. That is such a true indictment of others. But I'm a Christian. I recognize my son, and I, uh, I'm not like that anymore. I'm better than that. In fact, I'm better than I was. Praise God. You know, the fact of the matter is that the work of God in us doesn't just get us to heaven. Uh, but it changes us. It sanctifies us. In fact, it ends in our own glorification, the work of God that he is doing in us. That's true. And that is the hope that we have of glory. The problem for us is often is that we rest upon the fact 
that I'm not like I was. Or that we rest in the fact that somehow or other our self-improvement and our sanctification, somehow or other, we lose sight of the fact that the more we grow, the more we see, the more we appreciate the reality of the gospel for us, the deeper we realize the hole we were in. Now, that seems kind of counterintuitive. Remember, I've, I've used this illustration before. You know, Paul says he's the least of, of the apostles. He's the least of God's people, and he's the chief of sinners. Is he getting worse? No. The joy of the gospel, the joy of sins forgiven, the joy of righteousness given to us, grows deeper when we see how deep it must go to reach us, to see how deep God's love is, how warm his heart is for us, and how profound it is that God turns his heart and his love and sheds his blood for people like us. So that the deeper we see our sin the more we come to grips with that, we don't just sit there and say, woe is me. We say, thanks be to God for his marvelous grace to us in Jesus Christ because the cross becomes bigger. It's a virtuous cycle. And, and, and so as we come to grips with the reality of, of our depravity, we must also come to grips with the depth, the height, the width of the love of God for us. Do you like joy today? Do you lack a sense of uh, uh, God's work in your life? Do you feel like you're all alone in this and that somehow or other Jesus stands apart from you shouting at you to do better? You see, the, the, when you begin to kind of slip into those things, then what happens to us is we've missed the glory of what it means to have a God do this work on our behalf. We miss the glory of what it means that Christ died for the ungodly. Thanks be to him that when I was far from him, he came all the way to me. And so as we come to uh, the Lord's uh, uh, table uh, today. We have an opportunity to kind of declare that, uh, to celebrate that. Hear these words of institution uh, uh, to prepare our hearts uh, to, to eat with Jesus this morning. It says, the disciples prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's confess our sins. Hear our words and our groanings, O Lord. Give attention to our cry for mercy. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. 
You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. You abhor the bloodthirsty and deceitful. Forgive us, good Lord. We have sinned against you and our neighbor. We have sought to justify ourselves before you. We have attempted to atone for our own sins and punish the sins of others. And so we have boasted in sin and self. By your mercy alone, by the abundance of your steadfast love, may we enter your house. Because of your Son, O Lord, let us find refuge in him. Take away our sins and let us ever sing for joy. Cover us with your favor as with a shield for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. As I read earlier, on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. We have the opportunity to uh, recognize as we come to the table uh, that our only hope, uh, our only uh, um, joy is the fact that Jesus Christ loves us, that he lived a life we could never live and that he died the death that we deserved. And now he sets a place at his table for us. He welcomes us uh, as his very own. Not only do we have his righteousness, not only do we have the forgiveness of sins, but we have him and he has us. We belong to him and he belongs to us, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. That's the great news of the gospel, that Jesus takes dead men and women, boys and girls, and makes them alive for him forever. That's our hope. And that's our trust this morning. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you recognize you have no other hope except in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his work for you, that he has made you alive with him, you profess that to a body of believers somewhere, he welcomes you to sit at his table, to hear again about how much he loves you, and to see the warmth of his heart towards those of us who don't deserve it, but have it because of his grace and mercy. As the elders come down to assist me in serving this morning, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine. Uh, the inner rings are grape juice. Underneath uh, each cup is a wafer uh, that is gluten-free. If you're unable to come down front, uh, raise your hand, and we'll see to it uh, that you get served. Once everyone has been served, uh, we will eat and drink together. <clears throat> 